You're listening to Tov, a podcast about the good place and Jewish ideas. Hi, I'm John Spiracevet, and I am here co-hosting today with Ilana Schachter and Daniela Rizman. And it's great to have you guys here. Hi. 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 And so if you are listening to the podcast in the sequence that it's being released, we are out of order here. We're recording for chapter 24, which is called Rhonda, Diana, Jake, and Trent. And the reason is because in the actual time of reality where we're recording, we are right before the holiday of Purim, the Jewish festival of dressing up in costumes, which is very much what this episode has in it. So if you're listening later on and you want to hold on to this one and go back and listen to it in its in its good place sequence, you can do that. So Ilana, you're, you're a rabbi. Where do you rabbi? I am a rabbi currently at Temple Sinai of Roslyn in Roslyn, New York on Long Island. And uh, Daniela, you're a, a chazan, a, a cantor. Where do you where do you cant? <laughs> where do I cant? I'm a chazan at the Emanuel Synagogue in West Hartford, Connecticut. Cool, and it's so exciting. This is what a, the good place is bringing us together. We are all meeting each other for the first time, literally this hour, which is so great. So I want to ask either of you the question I ask everybody who co-hosts this for the first time, which is which of the main good place characters do you think you are most like? at the moment. I feel like this is a very vain thing to say, but maybe that just tells you something about me. I most identify with Eleanor. I guess it's vain because she is the main character, but maybe the most flawed. I identify with Eleanor because I feel like I'm always just trying to figure it out. Hmm. And sometimes I really step in the proverbial doo-doo, and sometimes I land in the right spot and I get really lucky and I do the right thing and I am so fortunate. And then I look around and I think, oh, how did that happen? So I, I, feel, like, I feel like Eleanor on some days. Mm. And Ilana, how about you? So I was so glad to be thinking about this question this weekend. I think this week I really feel like Chidi is my character. I think that he's the he's the geek in the show and he's not ashamed of how much he loves books and trying to find the answers in books. And as a rabbi, I really relate to that. <laughs> but also I think my husband would tell you that I I share a, a degree of his indecisiveness as well when they're two, you know, equally good options on the table. I often find myself like Chidi and the blueberry muffin where I just <laughs> just can't, I just can't figure it out. My brain's going to explode. So I'm, I'm feeling Chidi today. <laughs> and which character do you really wish you were a little or a lot more like? I love Jason's naivete and his sweetness. I think he is the funniest character, but I just really love his sweetness. I think there's something so lovable and just so easy to to look at Jason and, and, and adore him. So there's something really that pulls me about that, but he's also such an idiot, so I don't know. <laughs> yeah, and Ilana, how about you? 
Good, Janet. I just want to know everything. I don't want to have to work for it. I want to be able to snap and be an expert. That would be amazing. I love that answer. I want to be bad, Janet. I take back Jason. I want to be bad, Janet. I love the power and the the ability to say just anything. She can just say anything. Bad Janet. Oh yeah. So for the record, for those of you betting any money on the uh, on the season, the totals, this will go as uh, Danielle will officially be a bad Janet uh, wisher when we when we tally up at the end of the season. Uh, do you have good place origin stories of how you first discovered the show or got into it? My husband is our resident TV concierge, uh, so he will vet shows and then present them to me. And that's how I get to watch all of my shows. And we fell in love with The Good Place right away. We loved season one, not even knowing how good it was going to get. And by the end of season one, we were hooked. We were junkies. So did you watch it when it came out or did you binge it later on? No, we watched it live. It was very difficult. I don't know how we even were able to do that, really. (laughs) Cliffhangers were so intense. Now I'm like, even re-watching in preparation for our time together today, I turned on the episode that we're discussing today and three hours later, you know, got (laughs) off my couch. (laughs) I mean, I think I got a Hulu subscription just so I could watch The Good Place. I think I watched, I must have somehow watched the first episode and just I was in love with it I thought I remember was it like was it shrimp flying through the sky in the first episode (laughs) and the gaping hole oh it was so and then I remember re-watching it re-watching little bits of it after the big reveal and just being blown away by the amazing storytelling just being blown away so let's dive into this episode, and I think, Daniela, you're going to give us the, the recap. On the train to Bad Place headquarters, Michael distributes costumes to the humans, who each choose a character to be, except for Chidi, who is initially unwilling to lie. The humans and Janet find themselves at the Museum of Human Misery and play for time among the demons, while Michael approaches Sean, using the humans' extradition paperwork as a cover to get the badges they all need for the portal to the judge. After Eleanor gives Chidi a lecture on moral particularism, Chidi lets the demons believe he is actually Trent, an expert on torture. Sean sends commandos to Mindy St. Clair's house and learns the humans are not there. Michael flees, stealing the badges and rejoins the humans at a reception where a new exhibit about their neighborhood reveals their identities. The humans escape after Jason blocks Sean's pursuit with a Molotov cocktail. Michael sends Tahani, Jason, and Chidi through the portal before discovering he is one badge short. He gives his to Eleanor and pushes a protesting Eleanor through the portal just as Sean arrives. Cliffhanger. (laughs) Thank you. So let's uh, let's fan you a little bit about this episode. Were there any particular things that just made you laugh out loud? I obviously I love the character of Jason. I just I, he is so funny. And there's this moment where he suggests that they get the mol- that they throw the Molotov cocktails, and and they ask him if 
you know, has it ever worked for him before? <laughs> and he says, he says, he throws them all the top cocktail and then he doesn't have that problem anymore. He has a new problem. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's something, oh, that just, that he's so funny. Oh my God. So funny. I love his thing when he dresses up and when Janet gives him the, the briefcase, you know, on top of the, the costume that he has. Take my credit card to the hedge fund. <laughs> no, you're going to be discovered. I think when they're at the cocktail party and Jason can seamlessly hang out with the demons, like it's not hard for him. They all speak the same language. <laughs> I really love Tahani's getting into this American character, I guess, who she is dressed up as. I always love when, I guess, British characters, you know, try to speak American and they make fun of how, of how it is that we sound. There was, some, there was some line I wrote down where she talks about corn syrup and getting on a scooter and going yes. through the mall. The corn syrup. The corn, the corn syrup really sold it. I love her name dropping. Tahani's name dropping is sometimes so subtle and sometimes just so out of this world and then right at the toward the end when when her robot tahani says she's visited elon musk's underwater mansion or something and and she the real tahani turns to eleanor and says i really did do that it was remarkable <laughs> and then her robot says it was remarkable yeah. It's just such good writing. It's such good writing. She's, it's all so funny. It's, she's talking about with stuffing, I don't know, stuffing a hot dog down John Wayne's throat. And I think it's <laughs> Eleanor who says, even in hell, Tahani can name drop. The the thing about the hot dog torture where, where she comes up with this idea, I guess this is a part of her American thing, corn syrup and hot dogs. And, and Michael's instructor, you like, depends on what you're talking about. We have all kinds of hot dog torture, making people into, stuffing people into. His line, though, when she says, oh, you mean stuffing hot dogs into vegans' throats? And he says, sure, yeah, their throats. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it's so vile. It's such the show gets permission to do such vile jokes. And it's it always does it with such great timing that they can get away with it. It's just so funny. The rule in my house was always that a joke could be offensive as long as it was funny. <laughs> and and that is certainly true of The Good Place. I don't know if either of you listened to the official Good Place podcast, which I'm constantly referencing on this one. It is hosted by Mark Evan Jackson, who plays Sean, and who Sean is in this episode, and who's got this great kind of radio announcer type voice. But this episode has this classic Sean line where uh, we're describing about how he was going to go after the, the humans. And uh, I think Michael says, you can't do that. That's illegal. And then Sean says, then I remembered I'm a naughty bitch. And... <laughs> <laughs> His character is so great. He's a very funny guy. I've seen him, you know, when they do interviews, when they do group interviews. He's just always so spot on. Now, I have to say, you both look like you're possibly younger than me and quite substantially. So Sean talks about taking on the form of a 45-year-old white man because he can only fail up. <laughs> and I, I remember being 45, which is a little, a little while ago, and I wasn't quite sure how to take that. I thought that was a great. It was, I like that. I like that joke a lot. That he can just get away with the, the confidence of a mediocre middle-aged white man and fall up. <laughs> 
I love these kinds of things where they just kind of come up with these litanies of things that are horrible. There's something at the end where they're going through, like maybe it's the places they can look for the humans or cut them off. And I guess it's part of this museum of bad place horrors, children's dance recitals through holiday weekend Ikea. I think that the museum also takes a lot of shots at for lack of a better word, middle-aged white men. Like, there was a whole exhibit basically on mansplaining or bad office jargon, you know, (laughs) somebody's got a case of the Mondays or, you know, these expressions that are just awful. And and they end up in this museum as a punchline, which I really appreciated. (laughs) Yes. Well, on behalf of middle-aged white males, I... I'm willing to take one for the for the higher costs. <laughs> I'm sorry that you're outnumbered today. Oh, that's fine. That's fine. I'm not. I, I'm not. It's nice. <laughs> go for it. Go for it. There's. I think in the buffet when they're, they're offering the uh, the tray of food, there's soul oh, food. Oh, the tray of food. Yeah. Oh my! It was so good. What was on the tray of? <laughs> there was soul food from Maine, bagels from Arkansas. I think we could all appreciate that. Yes, and, <laughs> the bagels from Arkansas were when I realized, oh my, I missed the soul food from Maine. Yeah, and I heard bagels from, from Arkansas and I circled back. Oh my God. An so egg good. salad from, <laughs> from a hospital vending machine in Azerbaijan. <laughs> <laughs> the listeners cannot see, but Ilana is gagging. <laughs> Well, maybe we get more of that thing. You must have really loved Ilana, the line where there, where Chidi is recommending his form of torture as books, as... <laughs> books. Everybody hates books. But then that other demon is like the books like exploded. <laughs> so this, you know, to you, Daniela, as a as a Janet fan, even a bad Janet, I think she is. I think Darcy Cardinal, like an extraordinary actor. She's and... extraordinary. She yeah. is amazing she's she's so playful she's so willing to go there i was noticing early on when that when they're getting into their costumes and jason looks at her dressed up as you know impersonating bad janet and says you know you're sexy and she does this thing with her eye just her eyes you know this kind of raising she's just got these tremendous reactions and it so plays against in this how she herself the character of janet has such trouble getting into another character but she has such great actor reactions and can sell anything absolutely anything I, else you... I like her version of being bad where she calls them i think she calls them stinky or she calls them farts or something it's very <laughs> it's very you know kindergarten insults i remember growing up so i was born in israel and i remember growing up and thinking that calling someone a chamor calling someone a donkey was just so offensive that <laughs> That I, you know, I, I was a kid. I didn't have the vocabulary to be, thank God I didn't have the vocabulary <laughs> to be cruel and rude. So my idea of being mean was to say that somebody was a donkey or that they smelled. And 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 that's where, that's where good Janet is in her development. She can't get out something horrible. All she can come up with is like, you are a f- fart. <laughs> 100 percent good timing good timing there's a kid in the background i'm hiding from my kids at my office daniela what you were saying before before my 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 six-year-old came and visited us really resonated with me because i think that good janet has this kind of childlike naivete that we see in the in this episode when she tries to be bad janet i have a a six-year-old and an eight and a half year old and they're 
curse word vocabulary is hilarious. <laughs> um, the S word is stupid. The H word <laughs> is hate. There's no F word. And if somebody says the S word, their S word, they their faces will become white and ghost-like. Like it is really, really, really bad. The worst thing you could possibly say. And so I think that, you know, good Janet, when she, she struggles so hard to say those words, you stinker, you... <laughs> Arts. She's she. It's it's as far as she can go. She has stretched herself as yes. far as she can go. Yes, um, when she tries to be mean and and uh, is it Eleanor or Tahani makes her give a glass of water. Says, "Could I have a cup of water?" And she can't say no. She just yeah. and then she pulls out the one and they try again and and she pulls out what's behind your back and she pulls it out. <laughs> What do you have back there? And just in, in case, just in case, cup. She can't help herself. Oh, she's so, it's, that actress is an amazing, amazing storyteller. <laughs> I was thinking about my own experience as an opera singer. I am an opera singer by training before I became a chazan. And <clears throat> I have this very distinctive memory. I was doing a show and when you rehearse a show, you don't just put your costume on for dress rehearsal. You put your costume on, or at least parts of it, in advance. So we were relatively early on in our uh, rehearsal process of a Puccini opera. We were in rehearsal for Puccini's La Rondine and it's this cafe scene and it just was not coming together but the costumer happened to be there and we put on these long gloves that women never wear nowadays very fancy and all of a sudden out came these characters that just bloomed because when you wear something um not always but it can really affect the way you carry yourself and the way you think of yourself and the way you present yourself and I remember I remember putting on these gloves and sitting differently sort of being able to play the coquette all of a sudden going from you know being a 23 year old living on a shoestring in San Francisco trying to sing an opera with some dudes I barely knew to a courtesan in early 19th century Europe there's something magical about putting on a costume that that can do that. So I was thinking about Purim and I was thinking about costumes and and the good place and the, the act of playing, the act of putting on and playing, I don't think is just play. There's something profound about it that can change the way you see yourself. And so Ilana, you were talking about sort of one of the premises of the show is that these characters can change, that it's mind blowing these characters are so flawed, and yet even even Michael, who is a demon, when you see him in his demon form, he's this weird blob, right? And he, of course, chose, you know, a wealthy white dude to be his avatar, and he's just rotten. And yet, at the end of this episode, spoiler alert, he saves Eleanor. Something about wearing the costume and playing the part and this is maybe me sharing my theology too much, but something that I have always loved about Judaism is that it doesn't demand that you believe everything. At least my version of Judaism says you don't have to believe something 
but the process of doing it and that that your actions count and that the ritual and the behavior and part of that I think can feel like wearing a costume sometimes and then you do it and then maybe maybe it changes you for good Ilana for the listeners Ilana uh, has now put on a Mardi Gras-esque mask which looks really great on her it's got feathers I'm gonna well it's not fair if you guys I know you gotta just for a minute put on let me just let's (laughs) so the listeners should know because this is an important part of the blog that Rabbi John rocks a wig. Rabbi Ilana Schechter looks just gorgeous in her <laughs> Mardi Gras mask. And I, I have worn, how would you describe this? Clown nose. Glamorous. <laughs> gla- thanks. Thanks, Ilana. A very glamorous piece of bulbous nosewear. Sorry, so, so pur- I, yeah, Purim. We are right now getting ready for Purim. Purim is a festive Jewish holiday, often celebrated by families with young children because of the focus on dressing up in costume. But the holiday of Purim centers around the Book of Esther, Megillat Esther, which tells a story about Jews living in exile, Jews living in an assimilated community. And when it becomes important to hide being Jewish and when it becomes important to reveal their Jewish identity. There is a a villain in the story of Esther whose name is Haman or Haman. And when we say his name, we boo. And Esther, who is the queen, is also a Jewish person who has thus far hidden her Jewish identity until it becomes known that Haman plans to kill all of the Jews and Esther may be the only person in a position of power to save them, but can only save them by revealing her Jewish identity. So the holiday invites all of us to think about our identities when we, when we hide, when we conform, when we reveal ourselves. If you have young children, it's basically Frozen and Frozen 2. That's the story. Yes, yes. So I've been thinking about the the good place in that context. I think that the entire series arc is asking these same questions, right? Because the good place itself is, is a mask of some kind. The good place is a costume that everybody's inhabiting and we think as the viewers that we understand the characters we know who they are but constantly we are being challenged to say are you know are are those characters acting in as their truest selves or or not or are they wearing masks or are they growing and changing is there no such thing as our truest selves so i think that that when i'm thinking about michael as a michael's a great example of that we think we know Michael as this you know, lovely director of The Good Place, but then we find out that he's a demon, but then we find out that he's actually like a mensch. So like, who is he? And which, which mask is the real mask? Which costume is the real costume? Yeah. And as I start, thought about this, this episode through that lens, I was thinking that when we meet all of the characters, and as you said, even Michael, we're presented with 
who we who we're supposed to th- believe they are before the season one twist, but they're also being told when they arrive that they are somebody. I mean, in the extreme case is Eleanor, who's being told she's this totally other person, but everybody else is being told. Well, I guess Jason Gianyu also, but uh, but Tahani and Chidi are being told a version of themselves that they're supposed to believe that isn't really true to who they are, and at first they have to like be revealed as as a less good version, and then somehow change from there. And it was actually making me think about the character of of Esther in the Megillah, who at the beginning is not really defined as a person. She's for one a young person, a young woman. And in the second chapter of the Book of Esther, she's literally made to disappear physically into the the king's palace and harem, and then to be like so covered in makeup that that she's not really anybody until she until she begins. I guess as as you were saying, Abdaniel, until she begins to do things that sort of t- turn her into into somebody, reveal that out. She sort of wears the costume and becomes the queen, and wears the you know, Mordechai comes to her and says, you need to be the leader of your people. And she figures out how to take on that identity. You know, that I think that that is part of the the request for the fast. So for the listeners who don't know, there's a <clears throat> Esther fasts before she approaches the king and she asks the Jewish community to do so sort of in solidarity. And it's sort of her way of taking on this identity to somehow change her body and in doing so change her way of seeing herself. And also maybe, you know, there's the parallel to the sacrifice of, of you know, sacrifice of self in hopes that somehow divine protection will come. So that just to talk about that moment for a second, it, it it hit me that the very end of the episode, this conversation where Michael says to Eleanor, and oh my God, M. Michael Mordechai E. Eleanor Esther, that Michael basically he hands his badge over to her and says like it's it's on you now, like you can do this. They're gonna they need you more than they need me, which to me just totally reshaped how I thought about that moment in the Megillah where Mordechai essentially says, like, I, I, I'm this guy who does, like, I'm a known sort of notable guy. But actually, it's you, Esther, who have the power and only you. There's nothing I can do out here. You're the one. Uh, you've got to go into that portal <laughs> to see King Ahasuerus. I can't do that. You're going to do that. It's interesting you saw it that way. I Maybe this is me wanting to see the feminist narrative in Purim. But so the story begins, among other things, with... Vashti, the existing, the reigning queen, being booted out because she will not demean herself for the king and his and his party goers. And I like to imagine that in this moment, the power of of the woman is finally embraced. And that, that's obviously, to some degree, me reading into it what I want to read. But I don't feel like Mordechai was bequeathing power to mm. Esther. I feel like Mordechai was saying, I don't have, all I have is my, the laurels that I, I got lucky. I was in the right place at the right time. I heard the right thing. I, and I, yeah, I did the right thing and it, and it worked out great for me, but you, you actually have power and you can take action to save our world. And is there a parallel with that? And are we, should we give the writers of the good place? credit there to be saying something similar maybe maybe not but 
it's good storytelling. But yeah, I feel like Michael recognizes that his worth is not as great as the, the act of self-sacrifice in this moment is more than just a sacrifice of one. It is a great act. I'm thinking about what you shared earlier, Daniela, about putting on the gloves for your opera performance. And also this moment at the end of the episode where Michael pins Eleanor and, you know, pushes her out of the portal. This idea that we have to rise to the occasion and become ourselves at a certain point, whether it's we have to live out that role that we were cast in, we have to put on the gloves and then embody the part. Or in the story of Esther, when Mordechai comes to her and says, this is on you, this is your purpose, you have to do this. It is really at that moment in the narrative where she embodies the role. And we see that in this episode too, right? We see that Eleanor goes through the portal and, you know, I don't want to skip ahead to the, the next episode, but, but she steps into that role. She has, to, she has to step in as the leader of that group and really embody the part that she was assigned. So in that way, I think that there's a really beautiful parallel about the way in which these women are empowered and, and, and rise to that occasion. So one of the things I would ask the two of you, as again, the 45 and older male, white male in the, in the chat here, is that, you know, Eleanor is dressing up in this costume for the episode with the the horn-rimmed-ish kind of glasses and the the kind of librarian-ish part. And so she, on the one hand, she plays that to school Chidi a little bit to kind of give him some of his own medicine, and but in her own way. She's definitely both teaching him and kind of haranguing him at the same time. But I'm wondering what you think about the fact that, like, does she need this, is this particular costume she's wearing, which is so different from the look that's that we think of more as kind of Eleanor's Arizona trash bag thing. Is this a good is this a good thing? Are you are you bothered by by her look as she makes this move? I was super impressed by the costumers and the, the hair team. Whoever did her hair piece was fabulous. I don't know. I don't know if I have thoughts on that. Ilana? I was thinking more broadly about the costumes that they wear in this episode a lot. First of all, I like I love that you know, to dress up and visit with these demons, everybody looks like really sharp 1950s characters. Like, it's yeah. so, so classy, you know, they're so classy in hell. Uh, <laughs> way, way classier than in America, right? That's the, I feel like the underlying message. <laughs> but that there's the, the episode itself really plays with the idea of, of costume and identity. So at the museum, these characters are dressed up in disguise, looking as you said, looking put together, looking sharp, but they're pretending to not be themselves. And then there's this moment where they reveal the new exhibit of the museum, which is, of course, them, the four of them, in their kind of in their truest selves, right, as their most authentic selves. But those people don't exist. Those are robots or <laughs> sculptures or so the, the doppelgangers are actually like, they get to the heart of who these characters are, while the characters themselves are watching that take place in costume. And, you know, I feel like as the viewer, we kind of have to sit there and, and wrestle with that. Like, who are these people really? You know, are they the live people in costume or 
the immortalized figurines that are in the museum. In true rabbinic fashion, I have no answer. Just <laughs> posing the question. That's sort of the entire good. I mean, it's the good place right there. Is there's. It starts off. Eleanor is immediately in costume. She is immediately. Jason is immediately in costume. Michael is in costume the whole time. Yeah, good Janet doesn't. Uh, it's hard to hard to say what good Janet is or isn't besides an icon. I want to, I just, I guess I want to go back to make one point about that moment when the women step into their power that I find disappointing, which is that in both of these stories, these women are put in situations they really did not want to be in and did not choose for themselves. And then a man says to them, you have to fix this problem and just pushes them through the portal. You know, Esther, Esther is, she, she didn't go out looking to marry the king. She was told she had to go to the place and do the thing. And then the king said, you're, you're the pretty one I want. And you don't say no to the king. And then, and then her father fig comes to her and says, you have to do this thing. And she says, no, please. Thank you. I, that doesn't seem like, that doesn't seem like a good fit for me. Mm. And, and he says, no, you have to do this thing you have no choice. This is this is the role you have to step into or else. And Eleanor, I mean, we learn more and more about her character and all of her flaws and brokenness and beautiful, beautiful layers. I love Eleanor as a character, but she's in a situation that she um, obviously does not want to be in. And then some older white dude says, you got to step into a new role of power. And there is no choice, and he pushes her through the door. For whatever it's worth, this episode was co-written by a woman and a man, by Jen Statsky and Dan Schofield. I don't really know who Dan Schofield is. I've heard Jen Statsky, I think, talk on the other podcast. And I think that's so interesting, what you're saying. And I was I, I was thinking also that I went through and sort of felt like each character had a different relationship to the costume they were given for this episode. And, and Eleanor, in her way, had the most complicated relationship. She was visibly very uncomfortable with the costume she was assigned. And, you know, at first, I think. And as opposed to Jason, who I think like buys into his costume, like start to finish and to Honey too, who's like totally into it the whole way through. But Eleanor, I think she embodies some of that, that tension and problematic, I think, Daniela, that you are describing here. Yeah, I mean, I think what's problematic about it is in part, so the, the bad place is led by men or demons wearing the form of men. Both of these stories are, are led by men making, you know, cruel choices. And then women being put in a situation that they have no choice but to try to fix the problem, which is just, I mean, the story works because it's such a familiar trope, but it's not an old trope at least maybe it is an old trope. I don't know. But in this case, I think in the good place, it's not an old trope because it really, it speaks to us. Here's, here's this totally flawed human just trying to survive in this fantasy world that um, is not heartbreaking only because it's just so zany. <laughs> but if it weren't so zany, this would be such a sad story. So I, is that overwhelming your sense of Eleanor as coming into something by means of these successive costumes? No, I think, I mean, 
maybe in the micro in the micro sense i think i can very much see eleanor eleanor having this enormous trajectory with you know bumps in the road toward like any human toward toward a version of herself that is you know one she can feel proud of and we can admire you know and just like elani were saying that michael michael is a mensch eleanor does not think of herself as a mensch she really doesn't. She she identifies herself as this just garbage person, whether it's true or not. And I think we can, as the viewer, we can find we can find a lot of affection for her and not see her as a garbage person. And then we watch her both better herself and learn to see the good in herself, which is maybe the bigger the bigger change. And maybe also we see that in the Purim story. I don't know. Esther see Esther sees in herself the makings of a change maker. I think John, you know, one of the things that I'm holding on to right now is that you said that Eleanor is wearing one of the most uncomfortable costumes in this episode. And while physically I think that that might be true, we see Eleanor also very comfortable in the bad place. She gets her <laughs> vocabulary back. She's able to curse again. <laughs> She's able to really not have to pretend behaviorally the way that she has had to in the past in the good place. And I don't know, I'm I'm thinking about that. What are the ways in which this episode shows us how people are able to flex parts of their authentic character while being in costume? In some ways they're dressing up, in some ways they're taking off a mask that they've been wearing for a long time. Which I guess that's I the it. other way to think of the, the Purim thing. I've been thinking a lot about the moment, you know, do we dress up in masks and costumes on Purim so that when we take them off, we can sort of see ourselves, the real self, quote unquote, you know, more freshly. That's really interesting. The other thing that I wanted to raise was this idea of, of relentless optimism and hope that I feel in the good place all the time. Like, these characters are doomed. They're, first of all, they're already dead. They died, right? Like, <laughs> everything that we're watching, the entire show is about what happens now that they're dead. So our premise, you know, our understanding as human beings of, like, what's at stake, like, you know, with Esther, she says, like, I don't want to go to the king, I might die. But in the good place, they're already all dead, They're right? And what, what are they fighting for? They're fighting for this better afterlife to, to be released from the bad place. And they never give up. They never give up. It, it, one door closes and they figure out a way to keep going, to put on a different costume, to open a different door, to discover a portal. And that, that relentless hope and optimism, I think, is essential to our understandings of Judaism and especially the story of Purim. It doesn't look good for the Jews in Megillat Esther. Like there's no moment where we're like, this'll be fine, you guys, everything's fine. Like they are legit doomed. There is a date on the calendar for the Jewish people's annihilation. And yet they're still having conversations about how they can fix it. Mordechai still approaches Esther and says, you, you know, you have to try. And Esther tells the people to fast because you have to try. And in this episode, our characters continue to try, even when things look really bleak. So I'm inspired by the characters of The Good Place, that even when they've already lost everything that seems to matter to us as human beings, they continue 
to try and in the process actually get better, right? They actually grow and, and develop richer, fuller identities. So maybe that's our per message that we can hold on to. So one of the things I was thinking about was that, uh, as I started to say, the different relationship of people to the to costumes. And I thought about how Chidi is the one who refuses to put on a costume. He considers costume to be straight out lying. And so is so that what is that what happened on the train? I missed that detail. Say that again. He won't wear his costume because that would won't, be. Yeah, he won't change into this other character and take on another thing. That in and of yeah. itself, apart from the actual lying. That oh, Chidi. Well, but I think so it really got me to thinking about, you know, that essentially costume in, is presented here as like a permissible, as a, it's as, as not lying. I know people have somehow described, sometimes described acting as like the telling of beautiful lies or drama or something like that. But here, it seems like Chidi is confused about that. Like this, it's an intermediate space where you play out another possible mode that's you, that might actually be the true you in this case, or have some part of the true you. And he won't, he won't do that by getting into a, a costume at all. Chidi said, I won't lie about who I am. And when, when the Chidi who's in the exhibit talks and uh, introduces himself, he says, I'm Chidi Anagonye, or maybe I'm not. I can't decide anything. And I just thought that was an interesting counterplay as to, you know, it doesn't matter whether he's wearing, whether he puts on that costume or not, the, the regular Chidi, maybe I'm not Chidi. And, and Tahani, she's totally, she's in like, she's totally into it, you know, from the start. And I thought that Jason's was interesting that, that when he put on the suit, his first reaction was, is this horrible, it reminds me of court and going to court and representing myself in court against the advice of the judge and all that. And, and, and then Janet gives him the briefcase and like, it, it requires like an extra layer of costume. And then he's like, go oh, got this. And, he, and now, and that, and that's like, you know, there sometimes, more level of costume and I, I just thought that those were interesting contrasts in terms of you know costumes can you right you can disappear in a bad way into the mask that you put on or it can be a tool you know again back to daniela and your your long gloves yeah i mean this is such a cliche thing to say but i i feel like i'm always wearing a costume and maybe that's um the imposter syndrome in me but you know we wear costumes every day so i think one of the powerful things about intentionally putting on a costume is like you said when we take it off and we see how it is different and how it is the same then our and our when we put on that costume how comfortable or uncomfortable we are in it it can teach us about ourselves or it can teach us about how we would like to be i love wearing costumes i'm like I said, I'm a, a theater person. I'm an opera singer, and before being a, a cantor, I I think wearing a costume is beautiful. I think it's part of being human. Something that struck me when they were talking early on is how they have to go through this phase of putting on these costumes in order to go see the judge. There's this idea in the Hasidic traditions or Kabbalistic mystical tr traditions that compare Purim, the holiday of dressing up, to Yom Kippur, which is known as Yom Kippurim in the Torah, the day that's like Purim. And I just was really blown away by that, that some interpretations of the holiday of Purim see this as like we have to figure out what we should dress ourselves in in order to become the authentic best way to present ourselves for eternity. 
And, and then, of course, you know, see what we do on Yom Kippur when we actually costume ourselves just in white, all the same as what it takes to kind of appear before the judge. Well, I'm thinking about that first scene on the train where they all start to put on their costumes. And you mentioned, John, that Chidi kind of freaks out. And I was really struck by that moment, too. He says, I won't lie about who I am. He, he's very uh, clear about that. And the reason that he gives to Eleanor is that he doesn't want this moment to be the moment he, he gets judged. That, that everything else in his life and, and after his life somehow don't have the same weight for him as this moment on the train where he would lie in order to sneak in to get the appointment with the judge where he will be judged based on this moment. It feels very paradoxical. He feels really stuck. And in this episode, we don't get to meet the judge. We don't see what that process is going to be like. It is very much like we're, we're waiting on, you know, on Kol Nidre, on the, the, the evening of Yom Kippur. We don't know what's going to happen next. And for Chidi, that weighs really heavily on him. And for everybody else, I think that they're eager to get through. They'll do whatever it takes to get to that moment where they can have an audience with the judge. I'm not sure what the moral lesson is for all of us in that, but I felt so much for Chidi in this moment, how trapped he felt that the key to his potential redemption was the very thing that he could not handle. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Ilana, how very frightening for him. But Chidi lives that way, or dies that way, all the time. <laughs> Chidi exists in a reality where every single act could be the thing that puts you over the edge toward or away from salvation. And what a horrible way to live, but also in some ways the way I think a lot of us live, you know. And we do it, we do it in all forms. We do it, is this the food that is healthy for me? that will will give me you know the thing that i want or is this the action is this the, if i pick up my kid from school today will this be the you know the parenting moment that i should have or shouldn't have you know given enough weight to or anything that you do all of those little choices they feel like a world in themselves that they could make or break you but we all know i mean we're watching chidi and we're thinking Chidi, you got to just do the thing. You have to do the thing. The the point total means nothing if you're already in the bad place suffering and you don't get the audience with the judge. You got to figure it out, buddy. You you just like rock my world around the teaching that that I feel like is like my foundational good place teaching from Maimonides about seeing yourself as though your next act is going to declare your destiny or the destiny of the world for good or for bad or for the good place or the bad place, which I've always thought of as kind of empowering, like you might well be just this close to that. And now I've got to rethink that entirely. <laughs> so, <laughs> all roads lead back to uh, Maimonides and Juba thing. But thank you. Thank you guys for being there. Thank you, uh, Ilana. Thank you, Daniela. Such a pleasure. Thank you for having me. This was so much fun. So that's a wrap on another episode of Tove. Thanks for taking the time to listen. 
If we've gotten you more intrigued about Purim, take a look at the show notes on tovegoodplace.com. And you can find a Purim happening near you with your favorite search engine. There are Megillah readings, parties, and carnivals for all ages. It's one of the easiest Jewish celebrations to access, even if you're new somewhere or not a member. If you'd like me to help you find a Purim event near you or check out something you discover, drop a note to tov at tovegoodplace.com. I'm John Spirasavet at RabbiJS3 or RabbiJohn.net. And feel free to zoom in for Purim or drop in at TVAnashua.org. Chazan Daniela Rizman you can find at the Emanuel Synagogue in West Hartford, Connecticut. Rabbi Ilana Schachter is on Instagram at F-O-R underscore R-I-L-S. Or check out Temple Sinai in Roslyn, New York. Tove the podcast is everywhere at Tove Good Place. Subscribe, give us a good rating, share us with others. Thank you. And sort of like Mark Evan Jackson, who plays Sean, says at the end of the official Good Place podcast, now go learn more about something good. Bum, 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 bum.